let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. My name is Kelsey Waddell, and I am the Senior Editor of Healthpayer Intelligence and Multimedia Manager for Extelligent Healthcare Media. And today we have with us Tiffany Benjamin, Chief Executive Officer of the Humana Foundation, to talk a little bit about philanthropic efforts in health insurance and specifically how health insurers can improve their strategies around using philanthropy to ease social determinants of health barriers. Tiffany, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Kelsey. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited for this conversation as well. And I taken a glance at your bio and I think you have, I mean, just a really fascinating background. So I'd actually love to start us out by talking a bit about you and your journey. Could you tell our audience a little about your story? Yeah, I'm happy to. And I'm really excited to be here just to sort of share my journey. But I think a lot of people will hear things that are similar in their own journeys, hopefully. What I would start by saying is that service is has been in my blood. My My mom was actually a telephone operator when I was little, when that was a thing. They don't have those that much anymore, but she was. And then she went back to school to be a social worker. So she was a single mom who decided she wanted to be in service of other people. And I remember being really little and going with her to classes at college when she was getting her social work degree, coloring on the ground while she was learning about how to be in service of people going with her to her internships and when she started doing work in the community, including doing work to support HIV AIDS patients in the 80s when that was hyper unpopular work to do in the Midwest and just operating in service of people, whether it was at nursing homes, residential facilities, or at hospitals. And so I was raised to be the kind of person who puts people first. And for me in particular, as I went through my journey, because I spent so much time in residential facilities, nursing homes, and hospitals with my mom. Seniors in particular were something that was impactful to me. And in fact, random story is that one year, um, the folks in the nursing home my mom worked in actually built me a dollhouse for Christmas. And it was a gift that they gave me. And it was a really important story to me about how across generations, people can connect. They may not have things in common, but they can find ways to be together. And that was uplifting for them and for me. (laughs) So that's really what centers me in the work. Before joining the Humana Foundation, I was a lawyer for a while. I worked on Capitol Hill for the House Energy and Commerce Committee, working on things like the Affordable Care Act and a lot of other things in the healthcare, energy, and environment space. And then I moved home to Indiana to do some work for Eli Lilly and Company as a lawyer, and then eventually became the head of the Lilly Foundation, where we focused primarily on global health issues, but also issues of education in Indianapolis. Earlier this year, I joined the Humana Foundation because we are centered on health equity. And really, the work is a passion for me. I have a deep commitment to that work, and I have a really deep commitment to finding innovative solutions to barriers to health particularly for marginalized communities. And I'm really focused on formulating strong community-based partnerships and collaborations so that nonprofits, payers, foundations can co-create solutions that really make the broader health ecosystem better for everybody. Thank you so much for sharing that story. That's really beautiful how that desire to protect and support the marginalized population started even 
back with your mom and her setting that example. It's crazy how our families can influence us in that way. Well, so breaking a little bit out and into the area of philanthropy, I wanted to talk about how, you know, philanthropy is a common tool that payers have used like Humana and other large payers have used to address social determinants of health barriers. But I, I was curious, you know, no solution is perfect. Could you go over what are some of the pitfalls that philanthropic efforts can fall into when trying to inject funding into areas where inequity is present? Like specifically, are there times in which these efforts can actually cause more inequities or even pose barriers to long-term solutions? Yeah, I think to me, relationships are really similar no matter who your relationships are with. And so oftentimes, I think one of the mistake people who are trying to do philanthropy make is listening second, mm-hmm. talking first. It's really, really important to listen to communities who are impacted to figure out what their greatest needs are and how the community itself believes it can fill those gaps, right? What we're trying to do here is to create structural and systemic change to address barriers that have existed for a really long time. Um, and so in doing that, you have to listen, but you also have to understand that you're not going to solve all of these problems in five minutes. And so one of the other things I think is really key for people who are thinking about making an impact is that you can't just make a commitment for a year. You have to make a long-term commitment. You have to build a long-term strategy. You have to say to your community partners, I'm going to be here for a while as you build and grow and cultivate. For us as Humana and as the Humana Foundation, we have been investing in communities for over 40 years, and we've been recognizing and addressing the health needs of underserved communities and the socioeconomic causes of poor health for a really long time, and we understand that staying the course is really a priority. We did this on the corporate side with our Bold Goal Social Health Initiative, which is an ongoing investment in 20 communities across the U.S. to improve health equity for marginalized populations through through strong local partnerships. So for example, in 2020 and 2021, over 1.6 million meals were served to 94,000 at-risk individuals. In addition, our foundation funded programs to establish numerous access points for purchasing affordable fresh food in food deserts and to provide free nutrition and food benefit education programs, as well as support local farms and community gardens in places where people needed it the most. And it's not just when you think about health, thinking about health care or nutrition, but there are a lot of other social determinants of health, including thinking about housing right, and transportation. Mm-hmm. Humana Inc. actually gave a $25 million investment to increase increase the supply of affordable housing, in addition to partnering with legal services organizations in Louisiana to provide tenancy support and eviction diversion for Medicaid recipients. And that was done in partnership with Volunteers of America, um, where we work to provide recovery beds for mothers overcoming substance abuse disorders. So to me, I think what's powerful there is these are solutions that were built because the community told us they needed to be built. And I think the most important thing anybody can remember if they are going into philanthropy or they just want to give is that you have to be cognizant that the people closest to the pain, closest to the need, are the closest to the solution. Yeah, that's a very striking point. And you kind of addressed this, but that problem of finding the long-term solutions, not just investing in the short term and seeking out the community's perspective on actually what they need instead of 
you know, telling them what they need. How how can payers do a better job? What strategies have you all implemented that have been key to avoiding that pitfall? So I think the first thing for us is that I really do spend a lot of time out in the community asking people, what are the challenges you see? What are the solutions you think would fix this? And I don't do that in the vacuum and neither does the team. And so we're pretty focused on making sure that we are connecting to lots of different people with lots of different perspectives. So we understand what are the different pushes and pulls and tensions that are within the system. And frankly, sometimes we run into somebody who has a brilliant idea who really just needed an access point or a voice. And so that's really important to us. When we look at the longer term strategy, one of the things that's really, really important if you're going to do this work for the long haul and drive for change is investing in research and evidence-based solutions. So for example, for us as the Humana Foundation, we partnered with Humana Inc. and with the University of Louisville to form a partnership, um, which we call the University of Louisville Health Equity Innovation Hub. And the hub tests and creates evidence-based, scalable, and financially sustainable solutions to close health equity gaps and improve health outcomes and the quality of life for vulnerable and marginalized populations. So that's about us collaborating a lot of different organizations to figure out how can we bring community voice up, uplift it, and then drive for changes that feel like real change to the people living in those communities. Mm-hmm. One of the things we have to do if we're going to be successful at this work is to continually monitor and assess the impact of our work to see, are we investing in the right things? And deciding if we're not, then we have to innovate and pivot and change. Further investments have to be dependent on measurable outcomes that are achieved by the nonprofits. And we have to have people driving towards success that looks like system change. And frankly, one of the things that's most important to me is that, frankly, You can't do lip service to your commitment to removing barriers to health equity, right? So it has to be a priority at every level and everything you do in an organization. It has to be infused in your culture and your mission. It's really important that you look at whether your systems are equitable, whether the access points are equitable, whether you are bringing your own bias into a system and maybe sometimes missing things that are really important because you haven't looked at equity issues. It's important that people who work in philanthropy and foundations and people who are trying to make a difference in this way understand that healthcare is not the starting point for this work. Health is, right? Mm -hmm. It's critical to address issues around air, food, literacy, transportation, housing, and all the other barriers to health that affect healthcare down the road. But ultimately, you asked the question of how we can avoid all these pitfalls. And the truth is listening, right? Taking the time to hear from people what their real challenges are, where they are struggling and saying, I'm here to support you, not to tell you what to do, but figuring out how to make sure we're doing something that people feel like is moving the needle for them. I'm interested specifically as well, you know, there's a lot of different ways in which payers have been utilizing philanthropy to address health inequity and social determinants of health barriers. One of the ones that was really intriguing to me and I know is particularly played a role in your background is disaster relief work. And I know that you are serving on the board of the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. So I'd I'd love to get your perspective on this. What do payers need to keep in mind when they are seeking to address health equity through disaster relief? Are there ways in which this kind of relief might differ from other forms of health equity philanthropy? And, you know, if so, how do payers 
need to adjust to ensure that their efforts are having the intended and positive effect and are reducing care disparities? Yeah, I really appreciate the question. Disaster philanthropy is one of the things that I have spent a lot of time in, and I care deeply about that work. And I actually live in Kentucky, where in the last year, we have experienced horrific tornadoes and then floods. Um, And so we've seen the impact of disaster to our Humanic Hink associates, to the participants in our plans, and then to the communities in which we have constantly served, both before the disasters and ongoing after. So for me, this is passion work that I feel very close to and where I spend a lot of time talking to people who are doing that work. If you think about disaster more broadly, it really has three components. You've got disaster preparation, you've got response, and you've got recovery. Among those three components, recovery is frankly the most long-term, and it's a place where philanthropy should really go deep. You know, realistically, most disaster funding actually is completed within two months of when the disaster occurs, but there's very little left for long-term recovery work, little left for resiliency work. And if we look at it, the most harmed individuals and communities in natural disasters are often those who have endured economic, racial, and health inequities before the disaster hit. So we're talking about infrastructure challenges and real socioeconomic challenges that are just made worse by the disaster. So oftentimes we talk about returning the community to its pre-disaster state, but that means that to do that, to rebuild, you actually have to look at the root causes of the inequities that were there before, right? You have to figure out what's important to residents and what were their challenges, and then also figure out how to make them less vulnerable to future disasters. Uh, What that means is disaster work is long-term. We often see the headline, you know, for a week or so, but the people who are trying to rebuild their lives are there forever. And so you show up in the beginning to show support, but basically when you want to build true recovery and build resiliency, you have to give community members the skills and tools so they can support themselves and each other. And you can't just swoop in and say, hey, I'm here to help and then leave Mm -hmm. and then try to take over. You have to say, how can I support you? Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways disaster is really, really similar to the other work we do in terms of health equity, because you listen first and you try to respond to what the community needs. The reality is when you look at all of these issues in particular in disaster, when you're addressing health inequities, right? And not only do you have to build a sufficient medical infrastructure, but you have to ensure that people have access to affordable healthy food, housing, transportation, You have to make sure they have the educational and work opportunities to get them where they need to be in life. And particularly important in disaster relief, but also when providing mental health services to marginalized communities or when you're providing programs for social connectedness is making sure people feel part of something, right? You have to have a 360 degree approach to disaster. Um, What I would say is disaster is pretty similar to the other work, but there are a few differences. What you have to do is act fast. You have to stay for the really long run. And you have to understand that flexibility and agility is key. Because what may be a challenge in week one, it may be a totally different challenge in month six. And so you have to understand, I'm going to stick around, but I'm going to continue to talk to people who are on the ground about what you need now that you didn't need before. And ultimately, 
know you're going to be there for more than six months. You're going to be there a year or two. In fact, we actually went back this summer to visit communities that we gave support to as a result of the tornadoes that happened in December of last year. And we gave more money to those communities, right? Because we could see rebuilding is hard and what they thought they need, they might need different things. So collaboration is key in that space. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point of the, you know, a lot of these communities, we're trying to get them back to pre-disaster, but pre-disaster, they weren't necessarily at their healthiest either. And so exactly casting maybe even with the community, like a new vision for what it would look like to be a healthier community is also kind of what I'm hearing there. I don't know if you, would you agree? How has has that been something that you have seen happening or like need to happen in that process of talking to communities post-disaster? Absolutely. Look, equity work is disaster work. What you you hear are people who lived in houses that were probably not the most stable in the first place, and that's what made it so easy for it to be destroyed. But they didn't particularly want to live in the super unsafe house that they lived in before. (laughs) They wanted a safe place to raise their kids. They wanted a place that would stand up to a storm or have consistent lighting and heat. And so when we go in on a disaster, yes, we need to address the fact that they don't have a roof over their head. But then we have to address the longer term need, which is to give them a roof over their head that allows them to have a sustainable life, keep their families healthy and safe, and frankly, give them hope for the future. I just wanted to close out with sort of a time sensitive question as well, because I imagine that some of this, not just disaster relief, but philanthropic efforts in general have been really shaped potentially by COVID-19 and the fact that we have just gone through and are still in the midst of this global pandemic that has reshaped our lives in a lot of ways, continues to reshape communities daily. And so how have you seen, you know, having come to this position as we're still in the midst of this at Humana, how have you seen philanthropic efforts changing over the past few years in light of this pandemic that we're in? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is, The pandemic, I think it's been really hard on everybody, but one of the best things to come out of it to see how closely we can collaborate when there is an emergency. I've been so impressed by how much innovation has happened, how much agility, how closely payers, funders, nonprofits can work together to come up with quick solutions because they need to. And COVID really showed us when we all have a centralized goal, We can do a lot of things and we can make a lot of things possible. And I think on a bright side for us, for philanthropy, it really pushed us to acknowledge, frankly, how hard some things were before COVID, right? If you look at it, the pandemic laid bare the health disparities that exist in this country, right? With Black and Hispanic Americans twice as likely as white people to be hospitalized or die of COVID-19. There are still significant barriers to care. A new CDC study found that people of color are being treated with Paxlovid at far lower rates than their white patients. But we've been committed to improving health equity for underserved populations. So the pandemic didn't alter our mission, but it made it more urgent. And frankly, for us, it meant we had a lot more partners to bring to the table a lot more quickly, right? So in some ways, it was a rallying cry for everybody who does this work to say, Health means a lot of things, and so does healthcare. And we have to look at ways that we can partner more innovatively. 
Look, our existing partnership with the Center for Disaster Philanthropy allowed us to quickly direct funds with their COVID-19 response fund and organizations working with those vulnerable populations. So for us in Louisiana, we supported Crescent Care, which assisted Black residents in the area with high fatality rates in learning how to access and use telehealth and testing services and enroll in Medicaid. We also worked with Grace at the Greenlight to meet the basic needs of unsheltered homeless people and educate them on infection prevention. Frankly, telehealth was really only slightly catching on, even though we really wanted it to before COVID, but it's really given us an opportunity to expand care to people who before COVID really just couldn't get access or felt really uncomfortable with that access, and it's allowed us to create and innovate in that way. If I think about how COVID has changed philanthropy in general, what it's shown is there's some evidence that grants have been given at greater speed with fewer conditions and less burdens on grantee. And frankly, with greater collaboration with other donors and with community-based partners, as well as more organizations led by people of color. From my perspective, that's a really good thing. It means the entire ecosystem is talking to each other, right? We're trying to collectively solve challenges, which frankly, if we parse it out, we're not gonna get anywhere. If we're trying to drive for systemic change, we have to do it collaboratively. Um, I think one of the other things that we've seen as a significant change is that really there's been a recognition within my community of philanthropists that Band-Aid solutions are just not enough and that we're looking at structural and systemic root causes to health disparities and we have to invest long-term and frankly, we have to talk about them. And then as I always say, we have to listen. What I have to say is that I think for me, ultimately, COVID has been hard on the nonprofit community. It's been hard on foundations. But what it's done that I think is really wonderful is that it's opened the door for more people to sit at the table and bring with them their lived experiences when we think about solutions. So from my perspective, what I'm seeing is really an evolved philanthropic community that's thinking about how it can be part of a greater solution and how it can be one of many actors to lift up community voice. Thank you so much, Tiffany. I could go so much longer with this conversation, but we're going to end it there for now. And I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights with our audience today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Kelsey. If you have any thoughts that you would like to share or any questions or topics that you think that we should cover in future episodes, please reach out to me at kwadill at intelligentmedia.com. That's K-W-A-D-D-I-L-L at intelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts. And also don't forget to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks for listening. This has been an Intelligent Healthcare Media production. 